0: Good morning, wow, that seems extra loud, is it? Well, so we spent the last week in uh, Bandon up in Oregon camping and uh, it was a really good week, we had a lot of people there from the church and we had uh, last week when Alistair was preaching here, Brandon was preaching up there uh, to us as we met in a uh, yurt at the campground with, uh, I don't know almost 50 people uh, and we had communion together and uh, it was a really good time. So we're glad to be back, we got back last night and uh, this morning I got a call from Brandon up until about an hour and a half ago, I was not planning on preaching and Brandon called and said, I need you to preach. (laughs) So the first thing that popped into my head was somebody somewhere said at one point that you should always have a sermon in your back pocket And now I know why. And then, of course, that's the first thing Ryan said to me when I got here, just reminding me of that. Um, And to be honest, one of my first thoughts was, this would be a good week to get Dave Holst or uh, uh, Jeff Repass or someone else in the mix here, right? (laughs) No, I did think about calling Dave and telling him, like I used to tell my brother, when my mom would tell me to do something, I would go to my brother and say, hey, mom wants you to do this. Thought about calling Dave and saying, "Hey, Brandon wants you to preach." <laughs> uh, so, unfortunately, this may not be as long as normal. I know some of you might be happy to hear that. Um, uh, normally, when I come in with uh, about 11 pages or so, now I'm at. Th- hey, Larry, you're here. <laughs> um, normally, I have about 11 pages or so here, but I've down to like three and a half or four. So. Uh, we'll, just, we'll make it work uh, for today, so um, I'm glad to be up here, and if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, for those that are in my Sunday school class or my Bible study, we've been studying through Hebrews, so I thought this morning that uh, I would preach on something that I've been studying uh, instead of coming up with something out of thin air. Um, I don't want to just get up here and talk. I want to have the Word of God before me. And the word of God needs to be proclaimed to his people And that's what we'll do this morning, so if you have your Bibles you can turn to Hebrews 12 And Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer Father in heaven, we are grateful to be here today We gather as your people To do what your people do, Lord, we come together, we Lift your name in praise. We sing songs of worship. We give together. Father, we pray together. We hear the word of God together. We thank you for it and the power of your word. I pray, Father, that your word would do its work this morning. Uh, Lord, through the lack of being prepared, I pray, Father, that... Uh, hearts would be challenged by your word this morning, that we would be reminded by your word this morning that Christ is to be valued above all things, Lord, that our eyes should be fixed on him. We thank you for salvation that's found in him alone. Father, we lift up Brandon to you this morning as he's very sick. We ask that um, you would heal his body, give him rest that he needs, And, uh, Father, we thank you uh, for the privilege of being your children. We thank you that you love us as a father. We praise your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I've been studying in Hebrews, and um, the book of Hebrews is a letter written to a group of Jewish believers Jews who have come to faith in Christ. We don't know exactly where these people were or um, who, we don't even know exactly who wrote the book. I lean towards Paul being the author of of Hebrews, but, um, and there are differing thoughts on that. But this group of people that have come from Judaism to faith in Christ, uh, this is a whole book, a letter written to them to encourage them to stay with Christ, to stay the course. There's a temptation that the people have to fall back into the old sacrificial system, to fall back into what they've always known their, their entire life, which is um, what God had instituted earlier on. But they've come to faith in Christ, the, the lamb that was slain for their sin. Christ has come in the flesh. This is after Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection when this uh, letter was written. But there's this tendency for them to want to go back to the old. And this letter is written to encourage them, among other things, not to do that. That that would be a sinful thing, to go back to the old system. Uh, Why is it that they would want to go back to the old system? After they've come to faith in Christ, well, the reality is that it was a very difficult time. There was a lot of persecution and loss, loss of family, loss of privileges in the synagogue, loss of everything they've known because they've attached themselves to Christ. So they're kicked out of synagogues. Families kick them out of their families. They're beaten. They they have everything taken from them. Uh, And some of those things are addressed earlier on in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 10, the author talks about how uh, they had compassion on those other believers who were in prison and that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their own property, since they knew that they, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession an abiding one. Okay, so their focus is not on the earthly things, the, the trouble, the hardships that are coming, but their focus is on eternity with God. And we go through chapter 11, there's a whole chapter of faith, talking about faith all these Old Testament saints that were commended for their faith in God. And the author is reminding them that this is how God has always done it. It's always been about faith. The Old Testament saints were so by faith. God called them, gave them faith. God does the same with us. And so he lists out this huge list in chapter 11 of all these faithful Christians uh, or faithful believers uh, in God from the Old Testament, and he wants them to focus on that. As he gets into chapter 12, he wants them to focus on, on the fact that it was by faith that these people are saved, and, and it is so for them as well that it is by faith that they are saved through Christ. Um, and so as he wants them to focus on that and think about that, he also draws their attention then to Christ himself in, chap- in verse 2 of chapter 12, um, where he says, well, let's do 1 and 2. our focus needs to be. This is where the Hebrew believer's focus needed to be. Not on the persecution, not on the hardship and the struggles, but on Christ. And so he equates here in this chapter, he equates the the life of a believer as a race. You know, he he gives them this picture, this metaphor of of a race. And he says, let us run it with endurance. Um, Earlier on, in, uh, again, back in chapter 10, um, in verse 36, he says, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done, all, done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Uh, it should not be a surprise to us as Christians that we need endurance. How many of you are coasting through life with no problems, with, with no struggle with sin, with no loss, no hardship? Uh, I, I don't think there's anyone here who hasn't had that struggle or doesn't have struggles with those things. We are all struggling with these things. We are left here in this world. That's part of it as we're here. But our example in Christ is that we see in verse 2 of chapter 12 is that he went to the cross, not joyful about the cross for the sake of going to the cross, but joyful at what was beyond that, the result of the cross. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And so we get down to, uh, into chapter 12, and we have this comparison to a race, and then we see that he's talking about God as our father. He's reminding them that God is their father, and uh, that he is treating them as such. And he gets into discipline. In verse 7, let me read um, verse in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Um, let's start in verse 3 and we'll work our way down. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He says in verse 7 it is for discipline that you have to endure. Here the the Hebrews are told that they have to endure trials and sufferings uh, and chastisement. And it's for discipline, for training, for shaping or sanctifying them to make them holy as God is holy. We need to to think rightly about the trials and sufferings of our lives. uh, And what our Heavenly Father is up to by allowing things to happen in our lives or bringing things into our lives we need to have right thinking about this <clears throat> if you look over in first peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 19 let's look and see what it says there first peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 19 <clears throat> therefore preparing your minds for action Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is what God has for us. This is what God has for his people, is that they would be holy as he is Holy that we would be separate from the world. In Leviticus uh, chapter 20 uh, is a passage dealing with the Israelites regarding how God chose them out of all the peoples of the earth and separated them in order that they would be holy as He is holy. And He's telling them in that that passage in Leviticus 20 what is clean and what is unclean and how it is that they'll be separate. And He says there, you shall be holy to me for... I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Believers in Christ, those who are born again, should be different. We can't help but be different. It's a new birth. We, we have a, the mind of Christ. <clears throat> Our, we have new desires. We desire to serve Him. We desire to please Him. We never had that before we were believers, and that's what God does. He's working in us. He saves us to be His own. He separates us from the world. Again, it doesn't mean that we're monks up on a hill somewhere. We we have nothing to do with the world, but what does it mean that we're separate then? Well, it means that we're, we're clearly different. What the world says is okay, that is sin. The church says it is not okay. The world says it's okay to live in this way or that way. We say, no, it's not. That is not God's path. That is not according to God's word. And the world will mock Christians for it. They'll think we're foolish because of it. But we are to be separate. God has made us separate that we would be his. And what God did in separating or choosing a people to be his with the nation of Israel, he has also done with the Hebrews that have been written to here and with us. Who have been called by him and granted faith in Christ he has always been about the business of separating his children from the world this place here on earth that we are sojourners in is not really our home we have a heavenly home he separates us first by making us born again in Christ and then what does he do according to this passage in Hebrews he treats us as sons He treats us as daughters. Look at verse 7 again in chapter 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And he goes on to prove it by talking about earthly fathers. A true father disciplines his children. What true loving father doesn't do that? Verse 8, here is the proof. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If God does not discipline us, and the author here, writing to these Hebrews, says that they all are participating in this discipline, um, indicating that they are children of God. But he says, if God does not discipline us, it would be proof that we are not his children. They would be illegitimate children and not sons, is what it says. They may claim God as father, but if God leaves them in their sin and does not cause them to be born again, they are not sons. But the author is encouraging them, the Hebrew believers here, and we should be encouraged that God is treating you as sons. The things that God allows in our life and brings in our life to to strengthen our faith and to uh, sanctify us is evidence that God is treating us as sons and daughters. We should not despise that. Why is that any comfort? Why would it be a comfort that God is treating us as sons? Why would it be something as a comfort that is uh, painful or hurts? Because we have to know who it is that is doing that, who it is that is, knows all about us, knows what we need before we even ask it. We have to understand who God is and what he's doing and what he is about. The Greek word that has been translated as illegitimate uh, is only used once in the New Testament, and it's in this place here. Um, and it's elsewhere in Greek literature used to refer to children born to slaves or concubines um, in terms of this word illegitimate. It is, it's, and it's possible that this passage has a reference to uh, Abraham and Hagar, his concubine, and the son that was born to him, Ishmael. Um, the illegitimate son born to him. Ishmael was Abraham's son, but he was not the son of promise. He was not a true son and not included with God's people. And look at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 12. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as they seemed, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. It's another comparison here between our earthly fathers and our heavenly Father, <coughs> contrasting the imperfect way in which our earthly fathers discipline us. They do what seems best to them at the time, uh, and this is contrasted with uh, the discipline of our heavenly Father, that is true discipline. It's, it's good discipline. Earthly fathers disciplined in them, and we respected them for it, is what the passage says. And how much more should we be subject to our heavenly Father? And then it gives us why, the reason why we should be. Subject to our heavenly father. Because, first of all, uh, he is the father of spirits. He is our our heavenly father, our spiritual father. He, and the second part of that, that that's most important is, it says, and live. We should be subject to the father of spirits and live. And it's a reference to our new birth. It's a reference to being born again, the eternal life that is is given to us uh, in Christ, that every uh, believer possesses and every believer is a son or daughter of God. That's how much more should we be subject to him. Those earthly fathers have a short time in this life, uh, in the lives of their children, to provide discipline and to raise them, uh, and they do what seems best to them. Some do a better job than others but they're also sinners and imperfect. And some of you here may not have a great example of an earthly father who loved you and disciplined you. But if you're a believer in Christ, if you've been born again, you have a heavenly father who is absolutely perfect. They do what seems best to them. Our heavenly father, on the other hand, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Some of the ways that our Heavenly Father's discipline is contrasted with that of our earthly fathers is that our Heavenly Father's discipline is perfect. Our earthly Father's discipline is not perfect. Sometimes it's motivated by selfishness, sometimes it's motivated by irritation. But our Heavenly Father doesn't make mistakes. Our Heavenly Father is not motivated by those things. He knows absolutely what is good and what is best, and he's doing that in the lives of every believer. It's different for everyone. God may discipline you in a way that he doesn't discipline someone else. Maybe someone else doesn't struggle with X sin, but you do. But God's going to discipline them in a different way. Either way, God knows what each individual believer needs, and God meets that need. He treats you as sons and daughters by discipline. And he does this so that we can endure, because we are in need of endurance. The verse, verse 11, tells us what the results of proper discipline are. It also makes a very true statement about how we usually see or perceive discipline at the time we're being disciplined. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is painful. Discipline is not pleasant. Charles Spurgeon said, If affliction seemed to be joyous, would it be a chastisement at all? I ask you, would it not be a most ridiculous thing if a father should so chasten a child that the child came downstairs laughing and smiling and rejoicing at the flogging? Joyous? Instead of being at all serviceable, would it not be utterly useless? What good could a chastisement have done if it was not felt? no smart, then surely no benefit. I had to explain that one to my kids, no smart. I don't know, most of you probably know, right? We used to say if something hurt, you say, oh, that's smarts. But my kids didn't understand what that was. So. But Spurgeon did. No smart, then no benefit. No pain, no gain, right? That's the meaning there. But what does it yield? What does it bring about in the life of the one who has received God's discipline, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's discipline or chastisement is a training ground. It is what he uses to separate us from the rest of the world. It is what he uses to sanctify and make us holy as he is holy. And which of us likes being disciplined? When we are, don't we wish we could learn the lesson and instantly be perfect so that we don't have to be disciplined anymore? How many times do we give in to the same temptations? How many times we struggle with the same sin over and over and over again? Even though we hate it. Even though we don't want to sin. Paul described that about himself. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do. But he brings it back around to Christ. Who will save me? It's Christ. And remember that it is God who is working in us. And that the scripture says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon also said many believers are deeply grieved because. They do not at once feel that they have been profited by their afflictions. Well, you do not expect to see apples or plums on a tree which you have planted but a week. Only little children put their seeds into the flower garden and then expect to see them grow into plants in an hour. This life is long, doesn't it? Seem long. But the scripture describes our life as a mist. It's but a mist. God is up to something, He's at work in our lives. To make us holy as He is holy. And we need to not despise what God is doing in our lives. Over in James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, talks about wisdom from above. Verse 17, James 3, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom from above, this is God's wisdom. It is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. Though, when we're being disciplined, it doesn't seem so. But as we look back, as you look back on your life, you can probably see times where God has been disciplining you. The thing that you thought was maybe one thing at the time, you look back now and see, I see what God was doing. I see where he's brought me now because of that. Though, at the time, Perhaps it was hard to see. So what does it really mean if we then take the discipline of God in our lives, which many times comes in the form of reading His Word, as the Word penetrates our hearts, convicts us of our sinfulness, of our wrong living, our wrong thinking, it can be painful. But what do we do with that? If we resent that, what are we really saying? I'm saying that God's discipline is wrong. I'm saying his judgment about what, is, what correction is is unreasonable. God is not being reasonable with me. And basically what we're saying when we despise God's discipline is I know better than God. I've, I've figured my life out. I know what I need. I don't need that whatever it is he's bringing into my life. But God knows. He knows what is best. He knows what we need. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What God is doing by allowing or bringing suffering, pain, loss into our lives. He's he's building steadfastness. It's a testing of our faith that produces steadfastness. And what does 4 say to do in James 1? And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God knows what we need. I've mentioned not despising Uh, God's discipline. And we see that in the Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, where he says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The author of Hebrews earlier took the Hebrews back to that He took them back to the Old Testament to show this is what God was doing, this is what God still does. He's working in our lives. We should not despise the Lord's discipline. It is normal for God to discipline his children. We need to learn to be comforted by it. Even when it comes in the form of another believer coming and saying, this thing you're doing is sin. We should take that in. We shouldn't despise it. He's treating us as sons, and He is perfecting us for an eternity with Him. So verse 12 in Hebrews 12, then after all of that, He's drawing our attention back to those things and giving us what the response is. Therefore, in light of all that we've just said, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is, why or what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. This is encouragement. It's back to this race metaphor. Runners in a race, professional ones anyway, they have a coach and they, they coach them along the way. And this is basically what's happening here. We're running a race, and he's, he's hollering out these, these coachings, these encouragements to, to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. If any of you have done much running, I'm not talking as a real big runner here, but I did run track and field in high school. Um, but I remember some of the long races I ran, my, it got to the point where my posture is totally different. At, near the end, I'm, I'm sagging a little. My arms are hanging Uh, I can feel the burn in my legs and you feel like you can't go anymore. I have no strength left. And that's what he's calling out to here is is to strengthen those things. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. But why? Why should I? And do I have the strength to do that on my own? It's not about our own strength. It's not about The word telling us to do that and then i got to go home and figure out how am i going to strengthen my weak knees how am i going to lift my drooping hands the point is we have to remember what he's drawn their attention to first he's drawn their attention to christ verse 2 said looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith he said that right after his first mention of of this life as a race or he says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he says how we do it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Not looking to me. Not looking to some manufactured belief or faith that I think that I've come up with. But it's the saving faith granted to us by God. It's salvation. It's, it's eternity with him. It's what Christ did for us that we look to, we gain strength from. So he's calling them to lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees by looking to Christ. That is the only way that we can be strengthened. And what has God done that we can have the strength to do that? He has indwelled every believer with his Holy Spirit. So that when you read the Word of God, the Spirit brings to light what it says. It impacts us it hits us it teaches us and trains us points out our sin that we may lay it aside and why can we lay aside our sin because it's been paid for by Christ it means nothing for an unbeliever to lay aside their sin they haven't gained anything or accomplished anything but i can lay aside the burden of my sin because i'm not condemned by it anymore in Christ. Christ took that upon Himself. He paid that price. So, as believers, we lay aside every weight in sin. It's clinging to us. It tells us in the passage, it's clinging closely to us. Lay it aside. Put your focus on Christ. Fix your eyes on Him, and run with endurance the race that is set before you. One more scripture, Proverbs 4. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27. Says my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, And put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. It's a great passage, but it starts with something that's key. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. We can't run with endurance. We can't know what the straight path is unless we know what God says about it. We don't make up our own path. It's here in the Word of God where we find our path. And so we go to the Word to know what is the straight path. And we go to the Word to find that I am strengthened for that path by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I go to the Word of God to see what my focus is as I run this race of life. My focus is the prize. My focus is Christ. My focus is eternity with Him. So let the Word of God, let prayer, let fellowship with other believers who are also enduring Let it give us strength. Let us encourage one another with the words of Scripture that draw our attention to Christ in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our loss, that we may run with endurance this race that's set before us. Fix our eyes on Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. I pray, Lord, that as we read it, it would stick with us, Lord, that the words would penetrate, cut away, correct us, train us to be holy as you are holy. May we think rightly about your discipline. So as we each sit here today and, and ponder our lives, perhaps loss, perhaps hardship, suffering, or as we sit here and we know the secret sins in our life that no one else knows about, that we hate, we don't want, Father, Help us to remember that Christ died for that sin. Strengthen us, Father, to lay it aside and run with endurance. Help us, Father, to receive joyfully your discipline as you build steadfastness in us and let it have its full effect, Father, that we may be perfect and lacking in nothing. Not perfect meaning we'll never sin again, Father, but Father, we know that true perfection is Christ and it's His righteousness that is imputed to us. So do what you will with us, Father. Sanctify us, discipline us. Help us not to despise it, but to learn from it. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author, the perfecter of our faith.